0: because the upsurge has been sort of so vast and to to see all of those images on the news I was so distressing you know um you know the various images of um overflow of people in the hospital wards um who can't get beds can't get treatment that has been uh, really distressing of course we have do have family relatives, um, you know, in India, uh, both in Mumbai in the city, but also in the village uh, of our ancestral place, which is called Ratnagiri, uh, which is the western coast of India. Um, and that, of course, we, we do get the news, and we've been checking in every now and again with you know with family and friends, and um, mostly everybody is isolating and and doing their best to. to to stay well, Um, but we have had some relatives that we have known about who have passed away with COVID and of course that's always a sad thing. So I'm always trying to review my relationship with India and my um, connections to this place of my ancestral heritage. Um, Yet somehow it feels so much more personal.
1: You are listening to Maharashtra Matter, a Frontier Media podcast hosted by myself, Jean-Paul Simon, and engineered by Ricardo Lourinho, in conversation with Uzma Kazi on the subject of our connection to a distant motherland. At the point of the recording of this, the India variant has become the dominant variant in the UK, with numbers growing exponentially, and we are... 15 days away from finding out what the government is going to do. So um, a thing that strikes most people with a good sense is that a lot of the decisions in most countries, but since we're here, we'll talk about what affects us directly. A lot of the decisions are made with a political mindset, with political priorities, and that was the same with um, how things were handled. To begin with, in a Maharashtra, and I wanted to talk to you, Uzma, about that because um, it's no secret that um, an election was still run when when this was starting and becoming what 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 what's become really, and it has contributed to in numbers and in uh, infections. Um, school teachers were forced to go to work because the school would be a poll station, and then they would go home and they they would infect relatives, and relatives would die. So you don't need a a clearer example than than that. So I I just wanted to hear your opinion on on, on that side of it, and perhaps we can talk talk a bit more of how things are over here as well.
0: I guess um, I feel that India, in a general sense, is becoming a more and more polarised place, Um, for different communities, different faith communities. um, And I feel that the political landscape has a lot to do with that and has always had a lot to do with that. We can reflect on the here and now with COVID happening in front of us. um, And the fact that rallies continue to happen, the fact that uh, various religious gatherings and festivals continued to happen. And in effect, what has led to this second surge of COVID in India um, is, I think, really telling of a neglectful... It's almost a, you know, a neglectful leader in power. And I feel that, you know... Um, because of this polarization, really, um, the people who are well off and rich will continue to be okay. They'll be looked after. They'll have the best hospitals. Yeah. They will get the best care. Um, they will be able to isolate well. They will also probably be able to have a funeral with dignity. They'll be able to manage that well. They will be validated, but the majority of Indians, citizens, I feel, will not. Um, I've been following um, Arundhati Roy, who's a writer and novelist, uh, who speaks a lot um, about the political spectrum in India. And she wrote um, an article um, in which she, there was a quote, um, we are witnessing a crime against humanity. And I think it really speaks volumes because the leader that they have in India right now uses the narrative of faith and religion to polarise communities against each other, um, which means that for people to survive and and thrive in India will always have that political backdrop and and some will be more privileged than others because of that.
1: Yeah, because uh, the, the images that reach us paint a picture that is very striking in the sense that we see the the ones that are most affected being in some ways the obvious ones the ones that you would expect to be the most affected but in a way that is totally inhumane nothing was put in place and nothing was being put in place for a long time and correct me and uh, please inform me further, but from what I know, Ma- Maharashtra is one of the most industrialized states. Or it's the most industrialized state probably in, in India, isn't it? There's a big inequality because of the contrast between the privileged and the ones that are not even accounted for. Because if, if you take into account all those villages along the Ganges and all that, there they, are people that are born there that are not even... Registered so 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 they're not even a number that can be accounted for if they die of COVID. So so the whole idea that are, that we're actually witnessing a catastrophe, but only a fraction of a catastrophe, is very apparent. So yeah, I mean it's um, and what you're saying about um, the neglect, I think that there, I mean there's, there's it's the political interest that that perhaps can you can, you can draw a parallel and and a, a definite connection with how it goes on here. Everything is the result of something else and and serves an interest of somebody else always. So even in the way that uh, borders were never properly closed in time at any point during this pandemic over here, when it came to this news strain the science was all there the information was all there other countries around India were already being put in the red list and and India was not and why was that because Boris was expecting to go there to sign a trade deal and why the why was it so important to sign a trade deal because of brexit so everything can be traced back to something else and uh, and in this case something that had that impact over there has been brought over here now it's the dominant here you know, it's not a stretch of the imagination to think that it's self-harm.
0: Um, you know, I've been thinking about this so much um, in Bradford, where I'm from, um, in Bradford, where I live. Um, the, we have recently had um, a couple of clinics have recently um, opened for walk-in vaccination uh, for people, particularly the older age groups who may not have had uh, their vaccinations um, to make it easy for them um, to, to just walk in and, and get a vac- vaccine. I think that it's almost like global politics kind of colliding and capitalising in this really fragile time for humanity, yet business still continues. And of course to some degree business does need to continue um, however um, at what cost? I think that the borders should have absolutely been closed much earlier I know that there are various um, cities uh, across the UK that are absolutely on high alert because of their um, high Indian population or Indian heritage population um, and I can't help but feel as if as though you know this idea of neglect and not actually putting the right things into place at the right time. Sometimes one does think, has that been done on purpose?
1: Yeah, it's it's a for, it's definitely it's a definite form of neglect because I think that that's kind of like that lack of initiative to properly go around informing people, not just over here, but certainly over there. It's, perhaps more striking, but then there's the talk that certain communities, the, there's more hesitancy towards vaccination than others. And uh, I was wondering what you really think about the BAME term, because I have some thoughts and uh, you may want to say something first.
0: <laughs> oh, where shall we start with this one? Um, well, um, this term BAME stands for Black Asian Minority Ethnic Communities. And it was a term that was created as a way to control people of colour. At that time, we didn't have this term people of colour, but suddenly it feels that we are actually having to reconsider our identity with politics and kind of unbox ourselves not be um, categorized by these terms which have been put on us and in my work as a community development worker um, you know a lot of my work has been about engaging people from my community and uh, communities I should say Um, and we've often had to Go with that term because that is just what stuck. And one of the questions I'm asking myself at the moment and also asking of communities is, how do you want to define yourself? because um this word bame or this this term bame is something that was put on us. yeah, so how what do you think about it? How do you f- you know, I'm trying to find an alternative. What what I worry about is that what I think is has happened is that um because this term bame has been there for so long, people have gotten used to it. So there's some kind of a compliance, um, a kind of a going with the system and perhaps this is unconscious. So there's a lot of consciousness raising work that I feel has happened and we you know, we see these conversations happening more and more when things like black lives matter has arisen or, or various things are happen, you know, happen in, in, in the world. Um, and I think those kinds of things make us have to, um, think, think about where we are, where we stand, what we believe in, how we want to be defined and be firm about that. Um, so, but I, I feel that there's still a lot of work to do and it needs to be both within our communities and us speaking with compassion within our communities, but also for the, I'm going to say, non-BAME communities, <laughs> <laughs> for the non-BAME communities, um, to really be a part of those conversations. Yeah,
1: I think it's in some way it's up to the communities to speak up about how they feel about it because in this day and age there's never any any problem with people from all walks of life in all sorts of orientations or racial background to speak about how certain terms really make certain people feel so so there's a big is it is it is a big kind of like awakening in, in that sense but but that in itself still Carries an underlying need to categorize, to to identify and categorize, and then defend the ground of. Uh, and I'm, now I'm talking beyond race, you know. But that's kind of like the age we we live in. It's uh, uh, the age of opinion, protection of rights, uh, but also of uh, fighting your identity. And often, fighting your identity is finding your. Completely, no, no offense meant, but finding your label—that's kind of like how it comes across. Um, and I think British culture and British government, historically, it's very prone to categorization of groups, of 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 of, um, of movements. I don't, I'm not saying that there's always something nefarious behind it, but I, I'm, I'm, but it's definitely in in cases like this of the BAME community and the labeling of the BAME community and the bundling of such different communities into one categorization. Uh, I think, I mean, you can't, there's no escape that it's the whole point of it is racial. Even if you put Muslim mixed in, you know, it's it's still about race in terms of who in general is of a Muslim faith. So, um, so if it is racial motivated, I think it's up to the communities to say if they feel it's racist. I
0: I agree. I think that there is something about, like I say, that consciousness raising. And I feel that as a collective, um, we are moving in, in an unconscious way, progressing forward, but how many of us are, are able to question and critique this idea of BAME? You know, how how many of us actually do see ourselves as that? And I feel that it's really complex. I th- there's something about generational change and maybe there's some kind of progressiveness that's happening. Mm. And I think these shifts in... Thinking like BLM, for example, when things like that come about, I think forces us to question our place in the world or where we have been put in the world and where we want to be in the world. What is our standpoint? Um, I think I feel I, I just feel that there's so much work to do. And, and also I feel that it's, it's life work Will continue, we'll, we'll always continue to do this throughout our lives, and maybe by then, maybe there is a normalization of terms. Um, when I think generationally about what I see within my own family, sometimes um, when I speak to my nieces and nephews, for example, and we have this discussion about our sense of home and belonging, and you know, I grew up. Um, speaking Marathi or uh, Kokani which is the dialect of um, of Marathi that my family speaks. I, I grew up speaking and understanding Marathi because we spoke with my grandmother mm. and my parents but my nieces and nephews, they don't speak, they haven't had the opportunities to do that so much and so they don't and so every now and again I think we we try and like we do we do have these discussions and um it's interesting how each of us defines what we think a sense of home and belonging is and for my grandma who who sadly is not not around anymore but um i think she'd have a very interesting concept of what home is for her and she would action it in a way that is um like for example sending money um as an act of charity to people in India because that is her that for her that is home that is where she started that is that is her people that is her home to people like my generation or for for me there's a little bit of both because for me there's something really important about h- holding on to a sense of there's something wider than just the here and now and the present of me b- living and growing up in Britain. There's a there's a history. There are histories that are behind us. So there's something that I do absolutely hold on to, even if I haven't really lived in India. I can't deny that there is an absolute... Um, You know an inkling and a softness and a connection to that place um to then thinking about the younger generations whose mind it doesn't even cross you Mm. know um and um so it's interesting there's a there's a variety of opinions and thoughts around
1: yeah but they all kind of hinge on that idea of um where you came from Uh, that idea of you know you were born here weren't you yeah yeah but but you came from there you so so it's uh it's um it's um it's all it's all hinges on that uh that notion of motherland and um motherland as in mother nurturing so i I was wondering how throughout your life those values that you just described that you nurture still and that you that were put onto you and that form the identity of your family how 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 much at odds do you feel that they are with the uh, with the surrounding culture with the british culture that has its own values and its own strengths and its own uh, noble values let's say but uh, but uh, it's very different and it's and and uh, i was wondering if, if at all you feel like you feel so integrated that that doesn't come into your mind or 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 do you feel There's got to be at some points in your life that you feel um, the difference.
0: Oh, that's a big, loaded question. (laughs) Well, Um, me and my sisters, we often sit together and um, we reflect on this idea of our family, our culture, our rituals that we have, our food, our all of these things that are just second nature to us you know and we always always go back to my grandfather because of him we are here now you know all of them years ago in the 1950s he is the one who sat down somewhere in the village and decided that he was going to get up and come to England and he was going to come for a better life and and all of that um, and, you know, we were just thinking about what was that thinking process that he must have been going through and the kind of life that we live now, we have actually, as a society um, generally, um, we have access to so many privileges, you know, the privilege to hop on a train or hop on a plane. So I think it's really, really important to acknowledge um you know, the generations who came here before us. Mm. And I have this really funny thing there. The 1st of January, every year, I put a little post out on Instagram which says, um, happy birthday. And it's a a little... um, Basically, a lot of the South Asians who migrated to England in the 50s, 60s and so on, a lot of them were made to change their birth. Uh, their birth dates or their birth years to be able to easily um, come to the UK um, and as a result many people of that generation have two birthdays in the year <laughs> and um, a lot of them will have a birthday somewhere in January <laughs> um, so I like to do this little thing where I put a, a, a post out saying happy birthday to the people in my grandparents' generation we are here because of you you know and thank you (laughs) because of you we are able to actually reap the fruits of what we have now um I do feel somewhere that it's important to um you know in some way it feels like there's a duty to put back in and to ensure that we can nurture and validate and Take note of the journeys, the trauma, the difficult survival story that probably they all have. You know, for me, there's a real privilege of having a dual heritage identity um, because there's the opportunity to make the best of both, um, the wisdom of both, the fruits of both, etc. But... One can come at the cost of another and I really feel that there have been many occasions in my life where I've found that the two have really been a friction. Not that you should want to fit in, I get. not that I've wanted to fit in, I've just wanted to be me authentically in every situation that I go to. But there is no denying that having a heritage which is not British it has at times been exoticized, mm. and that's really frustrating because you're trying to reconcile all of the, the ease and the wisdom but also some of the really hard stuff. I've then also had to manage this British identity and sometimes that has come at a cost of my Indian heritage. Um, It's interesting because when I go to India, I have been called a Britisher and (laughs) that comes off the back of that colonial legacy of the empire and uh, the British Raj and all of that. And it's interesting because it works the other way around because in Britain, it's almost like you are diverse because you have something else that is not British, you know. (laughs) (laughs) So, So it's great in lots of ways, but it's also a whole set of negotiation, a whole set of trying to reconcile that, perhaps if you haven't got a dual heritage in that sense, that you may not have to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I hear you going into such detail and nuance about your experience like this, and I I think about my own and I, I wouldn't I wouldn't know where to start in a way but uh, I, but I, I could also st- it could also go back to my grandfather he left when he was a child when he got his education in, in the north of portugal and he lived away from his family for many years as a child and then he went back to angola and he was a high achiever and some people may know he's, he was a poet and even though his poetry spoke of a of a, an independent angola before any other poetry of the time in during Uh, Portuguese colonial rule of Angola, which got him into trouble, Um, even though he was writing about the pride that you should take on being uh, an Angolan, first and foremost, and not a subject to Portugal. He he always had a sense uh, of duty and an ethic that wasn't always replicated by the people around him. On both sides, on the side of the Portuguese sometimes and on the side of the Angolans that would work as well. So um, it took a war, a colonial war and then a civil war to for my grandfather to leave and then he was in Portugal. And when, while he was in Portugal he, was, he found out from a safe source that uh, his arrest had been arranged for the week after the date that he left And in those days being arrested would be to disappear completely, you know, because uh, he was already being considered a traitor because his poetry was uh, being embraced, but as he saw what was being done in the name of his poetry, so to speak, was something that he didn't want to have anything to do with, he could already tell, so he was considered a traitor to his own initial call (laughs) of independence. and he lived for the rest of his life in, uh, in in Portugal. So when I when I say that it al- it also goes back to a grandfather. It's like that because then we all he was such a strong figure. So we all sort of congregated around his knowledge and around his cooking, around his and around his um, spirit, and um, in the surrounding culture of that I that that I, that I was growing up in in Portugal, I was, you know, all my friends from school and all that, there would be less a sense, that sense of communion and the way that communion was expressed uh, in the simplest things. That was always there to mark a difference which would only become apparent if people would see someone from my family or my mother would pick me up from school or whatever, because the way I look, I don't look very different from that guy over there that's recording us. So in a way, I've been um, a target, I would never never call myself a victim because it's not about being a victim, but I've been a target of sort of like delayed racism or delayed uh, racist reactions because I wouldn't look particularly different from anyone else, but then they would see that in their view I was. So people that would even be friends up to that point would find a way to point it out or to or to express it, or to use it in the moment that they felt like they could, really. And then, on top of it, <laughs> I, uh, I came to England. Then I became something else. I, I didn't become someone from a mixed background necessarily, I just became a foreigner and someone that can't be identified very quickly as something else, but that people can tell is something else. So, um, and that in itself has its own set of challenges because then it becomes about how comfortable people are in the face of something they don't understand. And usually they're, they're not very comfortable. So.
0: Can I ask you a question because you know, you've talked about your grandfather's spirit and that feels really, really precious when you come up against these racist, situations or when you find yourself being you know a front with these things Mm. um do you have a process that helps you reconcile these things what does that look like
1: um that's a very good question because i think one of the ways is not to give it as much importance as or not to be on a constant state of outrage otherwise you don't do anything and you don't accomplish anything so you have to learn to step over it you know it's in the way and you step over it or you dodge it and you carry on that way you avoid conflict with someone who could never possibly understand you or where you come from so it's very it can be very tricky to be facing animosity and potential danger from someone ignorant because Ignorance can lead to to proper trouble. <laughs> um, if, if as soon as you are, as soon as you're informed, you question and you reason, and you can even if you don't agree or like something, you can find some moral core in yourself to not to do something or say something, no matter how you actually feel about it or you intellectually approach an issue.
0: It's interesting you say that. Because I wonder if sometimes, for example, going back to the reference of BAME, whether we can pigeonhole ourselves. And often I wonder, I want to be able to move forward and, for example, produce a piece of theatre work which has no reference to my... heritage or that I won't be seen as a woman of colour doing that piece of work but just that I will be seen as Usma and that that will be enough. I guess the hope, the hopeful me um, thinks that, that that is absolutely possible and is it that I have to shift my framing of how I see it? Um, you know, let's face it, um, the funding streams are set up for us to apply for work this word diversity. Before diversity, we had multiculturalism. <laughs> um, we had all these narratives about, you know, people from being backgrounds don't integrate. Um, what can we do to bring people out? And all so, this control mechanism, I feel, will always be there. And perhaps there's something freeing about letting go of the term and embracing the human being that will enable. Me and us to tell our stories just for what they are. Um, And that really excites me.
1: Yeah, I know that personally you've gone or you're going or you've recently gone through a period of acknowledgement of the role of your faith in your life, in in, in what you want to communicate and express. but um I, I I it's interesting because I've aspired to something like that and then and, and because of in my own in my own field as a filmmaker, I never thought I was making Portuguese films. But my films are always recognized as Portuguese by Portuguese people. That says something about that connection to a motherland because I was born in Angola. I left when I was one, so I grew up in Portugal. Didn't go back to Angola until I was in my mid thirties, and only once. So my formative years are Portuguese, and that's what I identify myself mostly as. At some point, one of my films was screened at, uh, at the Portuguese Film Archives, and the director of the Film Archives watched it with me. Uh, it was a special screening almost just for him, really. So we sat in a big sort of theater almost just the two of us, and he watched it, and they said that it had a, a very specific characteristic, that is that Portuguese filmmakers that are away from Portugal, they leave Portugal for their own reasons, and they think they're leaving Portugal behind, but they remain secretly in love with Portugal. And I think that, that there was a lot of truth in that, and I never thought about that. I just, you know, I just do what I do. And um, my point, I suppose, is that you you aspire to do to be able to do something particularly to be able properly able be allowed as in to come up with a project that is viable for you to make without the constraints or the labels put on or or the only path to take is uh, putting your arm up in the air and go ah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm diverse please <laughs> give him some money um, and and um, but the truth of the matter is that it will it will be there because it's part of your identity, of your DNA. Really,
0: it's so pertinent what you've said because I recently completed like ten years in my field of work, um, design, uh, theatre performance-related work, and youth and community work. And you know, you get to these sort of moments, and you think okay, what have I actually done in these last 10 years and where am I going and what does it all mean? Am I still creating work about the things that I set out to do? Mm. I think my artistic self always goes back to the 16-year-old Usma in the art room in school because that is where I was allowed or not just allowed, but I had the space. There weren't any rules, you know. You could do what you wanted. Mm. Um, but it's where I felt most at home. And so, some days I'd go to the art room and I'd just draw a thing, and it. I didn't know what it was, and it was okay that I didn't know what it was. It was just true for that moment. I didn't really have these words or labels for my work at that point. I was just really enjoying being curious about the world and um, it was brilliant because I used to go home from school and look at the encyclopedias that my dad used to have on his shelf and I used to look up India and then there was this word colonialism. It was sort of an all-encompassing journey and process that that didn't really have any marking points, it just happened and i really feel that if there could be moments like that that i could return to it would cut out the the sort of political vocabulary hmm. and the political systems which makes it really hard to make work that you're passionate about and that is speaks to your soul and i think as an artist c- to create work that speaks to your soul i think is such a beautiful thing.
1: It's a process that I think most most artists would recognize. Is that um, the work that you do through time and the way your body of work comes together and comes about. It's almost like it assimilates what's put on to it by 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 exterior and external forces and in, in opinions or or the way it was made possible through whatever funding or whatever. So that shaping of your artistic expression, always if you think and if you are conscientious and if you think about what you're doing and you take it seriously, you know that you need to unlearn a lot, You need there's a lot that you need to shed and to, to, because it, it be, from a certain point is to when you start you want to gain experience and once you gain experience you want to go back to that point that you didn't have the experience because you were freer, so in you and whatever would come out of you would, would be purer, uh, less polluted. Um, so um, that in itself, even though it's a very individual personal thing and it's expressed completely in individual terms, from person to person, from artist to artist. I think that's somewhere along that process that in trying to form or that identity again in your mind and to trying to identify it and to materialize it in some way. I think that's when the idea of where you were or where you came from starts seeping through and that's when uh, the relevance of a a motherland uh, becomes apparent again. This is a moment that we are registering and recording, I suppose, for prosperity. that we're trying to go back to that place. And is it a place that we've been to? Is it it a place that we identify as homeland, as our motherland, or is it it really about family? Is it beyond family? In my case, as I said earlier, um, I was born in Luanda, Angola, but only when I went back, things made sense on a profound level uh, for me. I wrote about this in an article a few years ago. Given the opportunity at some point to be sufficiently removed from Luanda and being able to be looking over onto the cityscape, the, the outline of the city across the waters, at a certain point I felt that suddenly everything made sense and that my life made a lot more sense. Because most of the time I never really felt like I belonged in Portugal, and not that I felt that I belonged in Angola while I was there either. but suddenly certain things, how I've been able to fight certain things in my life or uh, my reaction to certain things in my life, my choices of themes to explore in my films, the way they are explored, looking at that cityscape, just the, the sound of it that was chaotic and joyous at the same time and dangerous, Suddenly, all the darkness and all the extremes of my work were, made sense. Even though no one ever prescribed that to me, ever told me, look, this is what's going on, where it came from, so get on with making films that express that. And, that, and in fact, I never made films that specifically express that, but the energy and the choices made are very, very much informed on a genetic level nearly by that
0: yeah um i well i've been to india many times but it was a specific trip that i did in 2015 which was the most awakening for me um it was actually a trip that had taken me 10 years to do we traveled around the country Um, but we only had three months so there's only so much we could do Um, and um, we started in the north and slowly made our way down about seven hours south from Mumbai and maybe around four hours north from Goa is a place called Rathnagiri and this is the place on the western coast of Maharashtra where the Alfonso mangoes come from I have to add here, <laughs> um which I in season now, there was something about going there after twenty years, which was really, really heartening. Um, I went to visit um two different houses, one of them, which actually has now been knocked down to make way for a highway to be built, um which was is where my grandfather. Um, and, and, and his family stayed. Um, but also another house in the village, which as a child I remember going there. And so there were so many kind of significant visual images that came back to me as a child when I visited. And I think the thing that I mostly, mostly remember is the vividness of the, the colour of the soil it's like a red terracotta kind of colour and I remember getting out of the car that we were in and looking down and thinking oh I could have almost maybe took a little jar and brought some soil home with me and just kept it for the Hmm. and maybe there's some kind of romantic notion that I maybe have about this but I think it's actually something beyond that, I think it's something about being in the footsteps of my grandfather, of our ancestors, of really having an understanding that this is where actually I come from. This is, I was born in Bradford, (laughs) I've lived here in Britain, but actually we are from there.